Please open with me in God's Word to Revelation, the book of Revelation. This morning we're going to finish looking at chapter 1 here from the final book of the Bible. And uh, while you're turning there, I want us all to ask ourselves a question. How strong is your faith in Christ? How strong is your faith? Christ is it firm or is it fragile are you encouraged in your walk with the Lord or are you discouraged in your walk with the Lord are you confident or are you concerned well I know enough for my own life And I've learned enough by knowing other fellow Christians that our faith is often like a roller coaster ride. We enjoy the peaks where we feel close to God, and we struggle in the valleys where we feel far from God. But wherever you are in your relationship with God, He wants to strengthen your faith in Christ to endure the challenges that we all face in this world. And this is why here in this first vision in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, that we have a wonderful opportunity to be blessed as our faith is strengthened. And so let us receive then these words as they are read to us this morning. Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined by a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Brothers and sisters, before we continue, let us again go before our Lord, in prayer. Father, Father, I know that for many of us who are gathered here this morning, we can confess our faith is one of struggle, that we struggle with our faith in Christ. There is so much going on in our world. There are so many things that are happening in our lives. How easy it is for us, Father, to be overwhelmed. 
how common it is for doubts to enter our minds, for temptations to gain a hold in our thoughts. And for us to wander away from Jesus. But Father, our hope, our joy, our confidence is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we pray that you will indeed renew our faith and strengthen our faith so that we will rejoice in Christ and all that he has given us and will give us. Because Christ is indeed glorious. May we see his glory freshly this morning as your word is preached. Oh, Father. Use your word under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in each and every one of our lives. So that our faith will be strengthened. And our Savior will be glorified. Until he returns, Father, we pray for all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what strengthens our faith? It's the glory of Christ that fuels our faithfulness through our troubles and temptations. That's what we see here this morning from this passage of Scripture, that the glory of Christ fuels our faithfulness through our troubles and our temptations. And we learn this as the Apostle John here first hears Christ's message, then sees Christ's majesty, finally receives Christ's mandate. So there's the outline if you want to write it down. The Apostle John is hearing Christ's message, seeing Christ's majesty, and receiving Christ's mandate. Let's begin then. By considering verses 9 to 11, where he is hearing Christ's message. And of course, as we have read so far here in the opening verses of Revelation, God is giving these visions to the Apostle John to record as a letter of apocalyptic prophecy to Christ's churches. And from the previous verses, we read of Christ reigning over this world from heaven now, in this age, until he returns to this earth, where we will all be judged. As we come to verse 9, John identifies himself again to further explain how he has received this revelation from God. So as we read, listen to how he describes himself. He says, I, John both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So first, he says that he is their brother, your brother. Because when Christ saves us from the judgment we deserve for our sin through his death on the cross, we're reconciled with God and adopted by God into his family of faith. Notice then John doesn't pull rank here. He doesn't say, listen to me as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give his apostolic credentials, but he simply places himself on equal ground with them. As a fellow brother in God's family, then he also says that he is a fellow companion with them in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, which means he has been in fellowship with them in three ways. First, as he shares in their suffering with the same hardships that they have been facing, 
Remember, during these days, Christians were misunderstood and maligned in the Roman Empire and among the Jewish people who were living in the region, which is why they often faced persecution and were tempted to compromise their faith. Notice then, this tribulation is not a future period of time for the church. But it was taking place in the life of the Apostle John. And it continues then through the church age until Christ returns. See, this is what we should all expect in a world that remains opposed to God and who, which lives in rebellion against him tribulation. This world is one of tribulation for God's people. It's what Jesus himself says to us in John 16, verse 33. He says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See then how we are to live in this world. Yes, we will all experience tribulation, but Christ gives us peace. And so he shares with them in the tribulation. But second, John also shares together with them the kingdom. as They are citizens of heaven under the reign of King Jesus. Now, back in verse 6, Christ has made his disciples kings and priests in the sinful world, even as they wait for the kingdoms of this world to be replaced with Christ's everlasting kingdom to come. But here they are, citizens of Christ's kingdom, while remaining in this time of tribulation in the world. So John shares with them in the tribulation and the kingdom, but finally, in patience. He shares in their patience of perseverance through this time of tribulation. John has remained faithful to Christ by resting in and relying upon him through the temptations and the challenges that he has faced. Because John follows Christ on this path from suffering to glory. And as Christ has gone before us as one who has suffered unto glory, now we follow in his footsteps, living lives of suffering unto glory. Remember then that all three of these, tribulation, kingdom, and patience, we see here in verse 9, are of Jesus Christ. Christ, because they reveal who his people are in him and what we experience in him as we live in this world. So I like how uh, George Eldon Ladd summarizes the truth here when he writes, The church is the people to whom the kingdom has come and who will inherit the kingdom when it comes. But as such, it is the object of satanic hatred and is destined to suffer tribulation. Tribulation here includes all the evil which will befall the church, but especially the great tribulation at the end, which will be only the intensification of what the church has suffered throughout all history. Because of these anticipated evils, patient endurance is needed. That's what we read of then here in verse 9. Then as we go to verse 10, we shift from where John was to how and when this revelation took place. He was on the island of Patmos. Right? Didn't read that at the end of verse 9. that He was on the island that is called Patmos. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's banished here then to this island as an exile for his ministry of preaching Christ. But it's here that God has determined 
that John will receive the revelation from Christ. Which is why this revelation is here called the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, just as it was in verse 2. But after establishing where he was, we go on to see how and when this revelation took place in chapter 10. So let's continue. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You see, this revelation is inspired by God and communicated to John through the Holy Spirit. With all of God's authority and power behind what he is revealing in this book of apocalyptic prophecy. But this wasn't just any day, right? It was the Lord's day. And just as the Lord's Supper has been set apart by God to spiritually feed and nourish our souls with Christ's grace, so the Lord's day has been set apart by God for his people to gather together on the day of Christ's resurrection and worship him. So he is on this day of worship caught up in the Spirit where he enters into a trance and first hears behind him a loud voice. We, we go on to read of this as verse 10 continues. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, trumpets were an important instrument throughout the Old Testament. You may remember in your readings through the Old Testament how trumpets had announced the coronation of a king in his reign. Trumpets accompanied the offerings of God's people in worship. Trumpets signaled warfare to God's people against their enemies. And all are here included is this loud voice calls out to John. But what does this voice say? Verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, there is a textual issue here as verse 11 begins many of the early manuscripts we have of revelation do not include jesus's declaration that i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last but he's repeating here what we've already seen in verse 8 what we have then is him after this declaration that's recorded here going on to explain this command he's giving to John. What you see right in a book. John then is to record these prophetic visions for us to have as divinely inspired and given scripture. Which is why this book of Revelation must then be sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now remember in the ancient world... Here, this region refers to the area of what would now be modern-day Turkey. But as we consider these seven churches, there's some debate over why these seven churches are mentioned. After all, there were a number of other churches throughout the region back in the first century. There's also questions over why these seven are listed in the order that they are. But we see them here given to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now remember, Revelation makes known through symbols God's message to these churches. And so its numbers are not random, but they're representative. And seven is a central number here in this book. It represents fullness, completeness, and perfection. So these churches are seven local churches here spread throughout Asia Minor in the first century, but they also symbolize all of Christ's churches through history, including our own church today. They represent all of Christ's churches. Well, some go further. And they suggest these churches represent successive ages of church history from John's day until Christ's return. 
And so the early church then was first represented by Ephesus. And then as church history continues, they move into the age of the church of Smyrna and then on into the age of the church of Pergamos and to the age of Thyatira and the age of Sardis and the age of Philadelphia until this day, which would be seen as the age of the church of Laodicea. But I don't see these churches as representing specific ages. Rather, they're listed in this order because this was a circular letter, which would have been sent around to these churches and would have been carried to these churches on this route throughout the region. In any case, we find these churches serving as examples to us by symbolizing the various troubles and temptations which Christ's churches always face in this age. Which is why we must listen to Christ's message to every church. And as we look then to this revelation, oh, brothers and sisters, how we need to hear Christ's voice to his churches today. While this was recorded thousands of years ago, it was revealed through the Holy Spirit for Christians who struggle and suffer throughout this age. Which is why we must listen to Christ's message to every church. And Lord willing, we'll do so as the series continues. But may we all recognize this message as God's word to strengthen our faith in Christ. So John here begins by hearing Christ's message, but then in verses 12 to 16, John goes on to then seize Christ's majesty, right? Verse 12, he turns to see who is speaking, and we read there, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he sees these golden lampstands, which would have been similar to a large candelabra, a stand on which the oil lamps would have been set for light. If you're familiar with how Jews today celebrate Hanukkah, it'd be something very similar. You have these seven lamps on this menorah with the, the branches that come off. He sees seven of them. And we already considered the lampstand last week as we considered the seven spirits in verse 4 and saw its connection to Zechariah and the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4 where the seven lamps represented the Holy Spirit. But what about the lampstands? Well, again, there's a rich Old Testament background we need to consider for example, in Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 to 40, Moses is commanded to make a lampstand of pure gold with seven lamps for the holy place there in the tabernacle, so where God would be present with his people. But later in Israel's history, when Solomon constructs the temple in Jerusalem, we read in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 48 to 50, that ten lampstands of pure gold were placed in front of the inner sanctuary of the holy place again, where God promised to be with his people. Well, here, once more, Apostle John sees these seven golden lampstands, and in verse 20, we read what these lampstands represent, that they represent the seven churches who are receiving this letter. Because it's these churches who then shine God's light into a spiritually dark and sinful world. As they do so through the Holy Spirit. You see then how the lampstand symbolizes God's presence among his people in all of his churches. And it's in the midst of these seven lampstands. We go on to read in verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, sees one like the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man. Which picture, again, brings us back to the book of 
Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, and Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. So listen closely as I read these, and you can take note of them if you like, but Daniel 7, verses 9 to 14. We have this prophecy. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days were seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, his wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him that to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, does this sound familiar? What was prophesied in Daniel 7, John now sees in a vision of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. But then we go on to Daniel chapter 10, where we read more of the Son of Man. Daniel 10, verses 4 to 6. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, does that sound familiar? Of course. Of course. You see, Christ is this promised Messiah whom God anointed as king to rule over his people as the descendant of King David. He is then the son of man who is both fully God and fully man, two natures united into one person. Which is why the son of man then is the most common name or title that Jesus refers to himself as through the Gospels. As we turn back to Revelation chapter 1, don't miss where Christ is seen. Where was Christ seen? In the midst of the lampstands. Because he is present with his people. And he is protecting them during their persecution. Well, as we continue and John records what he saw, we're meant to picture with our minds how he describes Christ. And as we've already seen, there are eight images that are drawn from the Old Testament, which then are given to us in these verses to show us Jesus. So let's go on to read them. As verse 13 continues all the way down through verse 16. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining. In its strength. So let's reflect for a moment upon these images. First, see a long robe with a golden sash. Now this clothing draws on what the high priests would have worn in their ministry on behalf of God's people. 
in offering sacrifices of worship on behalf of God's people. And as they sought the forgiveness of their people's sins. But it also more generally is seen as the clothes that are then worn by rulers to show their high position and dignity. And of course, both are true here in describing Jesus Christ as our great high priest and as the one in high position with all dignity. But then we also see him as his head and hair are white like wool and snow, which is a bright whiteness. As Daniel 7 showed us, reveals the Ancient of Days, which now, with this same whiteness, reveals Christ to us as the Ancient of Days, as our eternal God. So he's this long robe with a golden sash. His head, his head and his hair were like wool and snow, but then his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, fire represents judgment and punishment, which will come through King Jesus, who sees all. Since nothing can be hidden from his eyes. That's why we then read of his feet being like fine brass, that's refined in a furnace because as a furnace purifies metal. So this refined brass or bronze metal shows us the complete purity of Christ as he rules in righteousness and judges with equity. Then we read of his voice, which is of the sound of many waters. This brings us back to the prophet Ezekiel. And the way he speaks of God's voice in this way, which emphasizes the authority and power of God's voice. And hence of Christ's words to us. So he's seen with a long robe and a golden sash, his head and his hair are white like wool and snow, his eyes are like flame of fire, his feet are like fine brass refined in a furnace. His voice was the sound of many waters, but then he has seven stars in his right hand. Now remember, the right hand symbolized authority and power in Scripture. And holding something in the hand means to have possession of it and power over it. So as verse 20 explains, these seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. It shows us that Christ is in control of all things, including the very powers of heaven, which serve him. As we go on to reflect on this vision of Christ, we read of a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Of course, we're not to be seeing any of this literally. This symbolizes for us what the prophet Isaiah warns us of, that at the coming of God's judgment, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. And as Isaiah goes on to say that his coming servant has made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's the sword of judgment. And through the mouth of Christ comes the proclamation and execution of God's judgment against sin in this world. Well, the final description we have of Christ here is that his countenance was like the sun, which shines in its strength. Have you ever sought to look at the sun and the brightness of the day? Now, children, don't do so. I've made that mistake, and I've paid for it with my own vision. But the sun is so bright, what happens? must turn away. It's overwhelming. And here we see Christ in such brightness that it's overwhelming. Christ's glory here is infinitely greater than the brightness of the sun. And so the brightness of the sun and its light, we find a frequent image through Scripture 
used of God in the Old Testament, and here Christ is shining like the sun and radiating its lights. You know, John had seen this previously. He'd seen it on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was turned into a bright whiteness before him. And it's the same brightness that blinded the Apostle Paul as he saw the resurrected Christ in his glory on the road to Damascus. But now Christ's glory is once again seen in his vision for the churches. Brothers and sisters, we're not meant to dissect these images. We're meant to see them together as a whole. So let's bring all this together into one picture of Christ. Here we're shown Christ as our glorious prophet, priest, and king who is reigning over his kingdom until he, return, or until he returns to judge the world in righteousness. And while God has forbidden us from making images of Jesus in the second commandment, Christians have often made pictures of Jesus over the centuries. You know what's remarkable? None of them look like this. Because none of them can look like this. This picture is unlike any other I have seen because it is far too great to be captured on a canvas. Here the glory of Christ is seen. What a glorious picture then we have in Christ of Christ in these verses. How then do you respond to Christ's majesty? Because what John sees here is a warning of judgment to unbelievers and a welcoming of rejoicing to believers. For those of us who remain in our sin, this is a warning of judgment to come because Jesus is our judge and will be our judge when he returns and we will be punished under the fires of judgments for eternity. Oh, if this is you this morning, look to Christ as the one who takes this very judgment upon himself through his death on the cross. It is in Christ that God's justice has been poured out on a substitute, on one who takes your place. So you'll be saved from the wrath of God and reconciled with Him. It's where you no longer need to fear this Christ of glory that can rejoice in His reign and His return. So believe in Christ and be strengthened by seeing His majesty. It is as we see and behold this Christ that our faith is strengthened to live in this world. So John has heard Christ's message and then John has seen Christ's majesty. But finally, in verses 17 to 20, John is receiving Christ's mandate. See, once John sees Christ in his majesty, what does he do? Well, let's read there in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Looking at Christ in his glory causes John to fall down in fear of his unworthiness and in awe of Christ's greatness because only the pure in heart can see God and live. But then we see that Christ is not only our majestic king, but he's also gentle and lowly in heart. Because look at how he responds to John as verse 17 continues. But he lays his right hand on me. 
he lays his right hand on John to comfort him, to reassure him. What great love and grace Christ has for his people. But notice what hand is placed on John. Again, it's Christ's right hand, which as we've already seen, represents his authority. So not only is he laying his hands on John to comfort him, but he's laying his hand on John to commission him with the authority to write. This is what he goes on to say then, as we continue reading in verse 17. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This again is another merism. Which you may remember brings together opposites to include everything in between. This is how God himself refers to, to himself throughout Isaiah. It says, I am the first and the last. So here is strong Trinitarian language really throughout the entire chapter because what is true of God the Father is also true of God the Son, which is true of God the Holy Spirit. Each person then is fully God and they are one God. And since Christ is first and last, he is both the origin and the goal of all human history, which is why he is then sovereign over all of time in between creation and the creation to come. And don't miss when he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Remember, I am who I am is God's covenantal name. And here Jesus takes this upon himself as our God in the flesh who's now ruling and reigning in heaven. But as we come to verse 18 then, we come to a summary of Christ's ministry. We go on to hear Christ declaring, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Brothers and sisters, he is alive. He lives now. Christ's death was not the end, but after Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in his place, he triumphed over the curse of sin, death with the resurrection life, and then ascended from earth to heaven. Which is why his resurrection life is eternal. And he is alive forevermore. Amen. May we all rejoice. Christ's ascension then to heaven was also his enthronement as our king. Which is why he is now ruling and reigning over this world from his heavenly throne. And notice what keys he has. At the end of the verse, he says, And I have the keys of Hades, and of death. Now, to have the keys of something is to have control over it, right? To have ownership of it. If I have the keys to my car, I'm the one who can drive my car. If I have the keys to my house, I control who enters and exits the house. Well, here, Christ has the keys over Hades and death which means he is in control over the ending of our life and over the afterlife, together with having control over all of the demonic powers in hell itself and over the angelic powers in heaven itself. So, brothers and sisters, we no longer need to fear death in Christ because he has delivered us from its terror. He is the one who holds its keys. And he is the one who gives us eternal life to then enjoy in his presence, regardless of what we face in this world. So it's after these glorious truths that in verse 19, Christ again tells John to write down this revelation. 
He says there, write these things. But what is he to write? Write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. You see, here in verse 19, we have what is the basic structure and outline of the book of Revelation. He's to record the vision that he has just seen of the glory of Christ, followed by the present status and situation of the seven churches, which will continue in the next two chapters. And then we move into the things which will come after this time from Revelation 4 and through the end of the book. Which is why this is a divinely commissioned book for Christ's churches and the people of God. So it's as we come then to the final verse of this chapter that Christ explains the meaning of what John has seen. Here it's called a mystery. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. He wants John and those who hear this revelation to rightly recognize and interpret the symbolism. Again, we're reminded of how symbols in Revelation represent other realities. And so he records what these symbols represent. They're identified in this verse. The seven stars are then the seven angels of the seven churches. And we're going to go on to hear more about them as each of these churches are then addressed in the next two chapters. But because this word for angels here means messenger, there are many who believe these angels actually refer to the seven pastors, the seven churches. Yet it seems more likely to me that these are actually seven angels, which is more consistent both with the symbolism of stars in the Old Testament as well as the fact that in Revelation, angels always refers to heavenly beings. These then are angels that represent these churches, which are the seven lampstands. These local churches through Asia Minor who are receiving this letter, which means that this revelation was not simply given by God for John, to encourage and help and strengthen John in his struggles and suffering. This revelation is given through John for Christ's churches as we all struggle and suffer in this world. See, revelation is meant to strengthen us in our tribulation in this world. Do you see then how it's the glory of Christ that fuels our faithfulness through our troubles and temptations. The glory of Christ fuels our faithfulness through our trials and our temptation because it's as we see Christ's glory with eyes of faith that we are then motivated to remain faithful in obedience through our struggles and our suffering in this world. May we all then look to Christ and his glory to strengthen our faith. Listen uh, briefly to the words from Jim Hamilton here. They're so helpful. As he writes, he says, The royal majesty of the risen king fires our hearts with passion, holds us faithful through flame and sword, and compels us to herald the good news of his salvation, for he has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is then the great revelation of Christ's glory for his people. So would you like to strengthen your faith this morning? Look to Christ. Look to Christ in the fullness of his glory, because in him, the roller coaster of life will not be burdensome. Brothers and sisters, it will be blessed. As we wait for Christ's return and the joy to come of eternal life in his presence.
our Christ is glorious. And He is the one who is now reigning in glory until He returns in judgment to where all that is corrupt, all that is cursed, will be forever removed and creation will be free to worship God in the fullness of His glory through Jesus Christ. May we then live each day with the glory of Christ firmly before our eyes. Let us pray. Father, no thank you for this vision of Christ's glory. Father, we ask for your forgiveness as our eyes so quickly have turned away from Christ. How quickly our eyes turn away through our troubles and our temptations in life. This is why you give us this revelation to remind us of the glory of Christ so that we will rejoice in His glory. So that our faith will be strengthened and fueled as we continue living in the midst of so many struggles and so much suffering, Lord. May we be those who are found faithful, who hear these words and keep them because we have been and will be blessed by Christ who is now reigning from His throne in heaven until He returns. So Father, we pray for all these things in the name of our glorious King, Jesus Christ. Amen.